And we'll continue right now with um, the reading of, of God's Word. We're, we're in a, a sermon series uh, look in Lent, um, looking at in, encounters that people have with Jesus. Uh, and then as we do, we're seeing our need for him. We're seeing our need to depend on him and all that he is for us. Uh, so we have a guest preacher here with us again today. Uh, we have Graham. He was here, last time it was in January. Uh, and he's come across from downtown again to join us here today. Graham, thank you very much for being with us. And um, looking forward to hearing you bring the word today. Sean will read the scripture passage for us. Then, Sean. Okay, today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What comes to your mind when you hear the word greatness? Do you think about a particular great man or woman of history? You know, do you think about Winston Churchill or... Nelson Mandela, Queen Elizabeth? Do you think about a great work of art? Beethoven Symphony No. 5, the Statue of David, the Mona Lisa. Do you think about a great human achievement? You know, the Pyramids of Giza, those first steps that we took on the moon some 52 years ago. What comes to your mind when you hear the word greatness? Maybe for some of us, we think about a great sports moment. Uh, You know, I I know the Super Bowl was a few weekends ago now. Um, And just out of curiosity, hands up football fans who watched the Super Bowl. Do we have any football fans? Some. Okay. Um, How about Rihanna fans who only watch the halftime show? Yes. Woo. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm among you. So perhaps that was greatness, you know. Um, I want to tell you a brief sports story that I think encapsulates a, a great Canadian athlete. And maybe you've heard this story before, but there's a a young Canadian athlete named Laurent Duvernier-Tardif who played in Super Bowl 54, so this was a couple years ago. He's an offensive lineman with the Kansas City Chiefs. And Laurent Duvernier-Tardif was on the field of play as the countdown clock for the game hit zero. The confetti cannons exploded overhead, announcing that his team, the Kansas City Chiefs, had just won Super Bowl 54. Duvernier Tardif threw his arms around their MVP quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, as cameramen, family, friends, and fans all descended onto the pitch to celebrate the winning team. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be in a moment like that? 62,000 fans in the stands cheering them on, and over 100 million people tuning in at home. A couple days later, the Kansas City Chiefs had a parade through their hometown where they were cheered on by over a million 
fans. And a few days after that, when Laurent Duvernier-Tardif returned to his hometown of Montreal, he was met with yet another victory parade because he's the first Quebec-born athlete to win a Super Bowl ring. This is a young man at the peak of his game. Maybe that's what greatness looks like. Well, in our passage today, we're exploring the theme and the nature of greatness. And this is all uh, sparked by a question that the 12 disciples ask Jesus. They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see, the disciples, they've been journeying with Jesus long enough that they become persuaded that he's the Messiah. He's the anointed true king of Israel in the line of David. And they've become convinced that at any moment, Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom. You know, he's going to go into Israel, be enthroned as the king, and restore Israel to its position of prestige and glory in the ancient world. And they're envisioning that this kingdom, it's going to look a lot like the other kingdoms that they're familiar with. You know, it's going to have a territory with a boundary, you know, physical borders. There's going to be cities that are run by magistrates. It'll have a military. It'll have Jesus as the king. And he'll have a group of courtiers around him who give him wise counsel. And so, with this kingdom about to arrive, they start jockeying with one another. Who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? Who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Does does Peter already have that locked down? Maybe he does. Who's going to be the ambassador to Ethiopia? Who's going to be the commander of the army? Who are going to be the great ones who hold these positions of power and prestige? Now, Matthew wants us to realize that in, in even asking this question, the disciples are exposing that they really haven't understood the nature of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about. Our text for today is from Matthew 18, but if you were to flip back one page in your Bible to Matthew chapter 17, you'd see that as Jesus and his disciples are journeying, Jesus takes them aside and he tells them a startling truth. He says, I'm about to die and I will rise again. And shortly after that conversation, they start asking him who's going to be the greatest. So, I mean, can you just imagine this moment for a second? You know, you're journeying with Jesus. He pulls you aside and says, Soon I'm going to be handed over to wicked people. I will die, and I will rise. And there's a moment of silence. And then Philip says, But who will be the ambassador to Ethiopia? Right? You should chuckle, because it's ridiculous. It's, it's completely tone deaf. It, com- it demonstrates they've completely misunderstood what Jesus is all about, and what his kingdom is all about. But Matthew doesn't show us the foolishness of the disciples, just so that we can laugh at them and pat ourselves on the back. Matthew shows us the foolishness of the disciples because we share that foolishness. We too are a people who are deeply concerned about our status. We want to go back to our high school reunion or our university reunion, and we want people to talk. We want them to talk about our impressive job title. We want them to talk about our fancy shoes, our nice watch, the car that we drove in. We want them to talk about how good our body looks, how much hair we still have. We want them to talk about the interesting hobbies that we're pursuing, the kinds of vacations that we're going on, how attractive our spouse is, how obedient our children are. 
we want them to talk. We want them to talk about how wonderful we are at conversation, how funny we are, how sophisticated we are. We want them to talk about our achievements because that's how we define our status. And so, to all of us today, Jesus is saying, you're looking at greatness through the eyes of this world. And God looks at greatness in a very different way. And so, okay, disciples, you're asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom? How can we become great? You want to know the answer? Okay, truly, truly, this is Jesus saying, get your pens out. Listen up. I'm going to tell you the secret of greatness, okay? You want to know what greatness looks like? Look at Meredith. Look at Cedric. Look at Marla and Lucy and Nate. Jeff tells me that there's about to be a baby boom at Grace West, that in the next nine months there will be many babies in the nursery. Look at those babies because they are going to teach you about greatness. They're going to teach you about the traits that are valued in my kingdom. And so, let's move on in our text. Um, Andrew, Andrew, if you're still here, would you read for us verses 2, 3, and 4? Thank you, Andrew. So Jesus is saying, you want to know what greatness looks like? And he calls a little child into their midst. You can imagine how small and insignificant this toddler, Charlie, looks in the midst of these 12 lanky teenagers, burly fishermen. And Jesus says, look at this child. Unless you turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom. Never mind being the greatest in the kingdom, you won't even get in. And whoever would be great in the kingdom must humble himself like this little child. Now, what would the disciples have thought that Jesus meant by this? What was he inviting them to do? Was he telling them to become innocent in the way that a child is innocent? Well, parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, brothers and sisters, teachers, Uh, Sunday school teachers, are little children innocent? You ever been bit by a child? (laughs) You ever seen a a 12-month-old child steal the toy of the kid who's next to them? Uh, University students, have you ever read The Lord of the Flies? No, they knew that children weren't innocent. They knew that children are precious gifts from God, absolutely. But Jesus didn't have like a, a precious moments sort of idea going on here. Was he saying that, you know, you should act humbly as children act humbly? Well, it's been my experience that children are no more or less humble than the average adult population. And in fact, as adults, one of the responsibilities we have is to teach children how to behave in an appropriate manner, in a humble manner, right? Don't brag about yourself. Give him a turn on the swing. You know, imagine how she feels when you say that. And, you know, we find that certain children respond more easily to those instructions and others have more trouble with it. Just as some adults find it easier and others find it harder to express humility. Human nature hasn't changed very much over the past two millennia. So Jesus wasn't saying, be innocent like this child. He wasn't saying, act in a humble way like this child. 
what did the disciples think he meant? Well, in the ancient world, children, they were valued. You know, uh, they were seen as a sign of God's blessing. If you had a lot of kids, it was a sign that God's favor was upon you in the ancient world. Children received affection in the healthy families that they were in. But it was also acknowledged that children in no way contributed towards the interests or the objectives of the kingdom into which they were born. They didn't contribute anything. Babies couldn't bear arms in the king's army. Toddlers couldn't amass wealth and contribute towards the riches of the kingdom. Little children couldn't give the king wise counsel in his court. They had to grow up first, right? And once they grew up, then they could be a soldier. Then they could be a laborer. Then they could be a wise counselor. But while they were children, all that they offered was potential. And they didn't contribute in any way towards advancing the purposes of the kingdom to which they belonged. And so it's to this group of disciples, a group who viewed children in this way, that Jesus says, you want to know what greatness looks like in my kingdom? Look at these children. Jesus is saying, don't become childish. Become childlike. Don't mimic the subjective humility of the children, you know, the way that they act in society, but rather embody the objective humility of these children. Embody the humility which comes with their status as children in that ancient world. And so now let's think for a moment about what are some of the traits of humility that we see in the status of children, okay? And I'm sure there's a bunch. I'm sure if, you know, if we took um, ideas right now, we could probably come up with a really long list. But I've chosen three that I think relate to what Jesus might have had in mind for his disciples. And the first is children are dependent. They have dependence. Children are vulnerable, right? They, when they're very young, they can't make their own food, even if there's a full fridge of food. They can't, they can't access it. They can't clothe themselves or clean themselves. They can't cross the street safely. They have to hold the hand of an adult. And so children are dependent upon the loving grown-ups in their life to provide for their needs, to nourish them, to teach them, and to help mold them. And they won't survive or thrive without that relationship. Now, as we grow up, we become independent, right? I don't need someone to feed me. I work a job. I earn money. I go to a grocery store and buy food or order it from Walmart. And then um, we cook it at home and make our own meal. I don't need to hold someone's hand across the road, right? We could, we could uh, buy our own plane ticket to Hawaii and rent a car once we get there and drive ourselves around the island. I don't need someone to tuck me in at night. I buy my own bed, tuck myself into it, right? We become independent. And that's not a bad thing, okay? Now, there, there's something profoundly wrong if you are a first-year university student and you don't know how to use a toaster. That's a true story, Okay? There's something profoundly wrong if you're an 18-year-old man and you need your mom to cut your steak for you, right? Something has gone wrong there. But the problem comes when we extend our independent spirit into our spirituality. When we extend our self-sufficient spirit into how we view spiritual things. I don't need God. I'm living a good life. Things are fine without him. Maybe I needed God's grace when I first became a Christian, but 
I've actually advanced quite a bit. I lead a small group at Grace West. I've gone on a missions trip. I know lots about the Bible. I don't need his grace as much as I used to. And the fact is that spiritually speaking, we are all dependent on God. The Apostle Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need to unlearn our independence and relearn the dependence of a child on our Heavenly Father. Secondly, I would say children, another way that we see their sort of humble status is that they are more easily satisfied. They're more easily contented than adults are. Now, I'm, I'm talking, imagine in your mind a very young child, you know, 12 months or younger. If that child has a full belly of milk, if they're in the arms of a loved one, if they've been burped recently and their clothing doesn't have any wrinkles, they had a nice long nap, and they're holding a crinkly ball, that is a happy child. They don't need the riches of this world. They wouldn't even know what to do with it. They're content with those simple things. But you know, as adults, we're not so easily contented. Some years ago, I was watching a stand-up comedian, and he was, um, he was depicting a fictional conversation between a man and God. And in the conversation, the man complains to God. He says, oh, I'm hungry. Why don't you give me any food? And God says, I literally left food everywhere for you. It's all over the ground. Just pick some broccoli. And the guy says, yeah, but I like when it has bacon wrapped around it. (laughs) He's developed champagne tastes, right? Not so easily satisfied. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want to say right now, I am glad that people weren't content just to be sweaty all the time. And that someone said, you know what, this sucks. I'm going to invent air conditioning. Thank God for that, you know. That's a good thing. But it becomes problematic, again, when we say, you know, I think that this world can satisfy all my longings. We feel an itch for beauty, for, for justice, for love, for intimacy, for hope, for holiness. And instead of looking to God, we look to the millions of little distractions that are available to us as adults in the Western world. And Jesus is reminding us that our souls will be restless until they find their true rest in God. So we need to unlearn our adult proclivity to look that just over that next hill, then we'll find peace. Instead, we need to look to God. The third point that I would bring up is that children derive their status from the families to which they're connected. Okay, so think about Princess Charlotte right now. Princess Charlotte's status comes from the fact that she is the daughter of the Prince and Princess of Wales. If she was born in my family, she would have a different status. Society would treat her differently because she derives that status not based on anything that she's done as a child. She derives it from who her parents are. Now, in the Western world, we still do have a bit of this. You know, we talk about people being born with a silver spoon in their mouth. We talk about people being born with a natural leg up in society. But in general, 
more so, we are defined by those around us. They define us by our own achievements. The decisions that we've made, the jobs that we work, the interests that we have, more so than we are defined by who our parents are. And again, that's not a bad thing. But Jesus is saying here that we need to learn a very hard lesson for adults. What we need to learn is to be defined not by our own name, not by our own works, but by the name and the works of our Heavenly Father. And that's hard for us because that takes real humility. It takes humility to say that he must increase and I must decrease. So Jesus is saying that unless you unlearn your independent spirit, unless you unlearn the tendency to look to this world to satisfy every craving, unless you unlearn your ego and your pride, you will never enter the kingdom. The King James Bible translates this verse, except ye be converted and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. A number of months ago, um, Erica and I took our daughter Morgan to an indoor playground for one of her classmates' birthday parties. Uh, it was on the West End. This is one of those really amazing indoor play structures. You know, there were catwalks up high. There were tunnels, slides, ball pits. There were things to climb. It was awesome. And when we got there, it was just, it was like a zoo. There were kids running everywhere. And Erica said, you better go in with Morgan and follow her just to make sure she's comfortable and, and finds her friends. So I followed Morgan into this indoor play structure. Let me tell you, it was not built for adults. I was banging my head on stuff. It was padded, so that was okay. I was getting stuck in tunnels, whereas Morgan was just flying through this thing with no problem, and eventually I lost her in the crowd. She was fine. She she found her friends. She was having a good time. But I realized in that moment, this isn't made for me. I need to get out of here. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God has a four-foot-tall door. It's made for little people. And if we try to come in with our grown-up ego, our grown-up pride, our grown-up desire to stand on our own two feet, we're not going to fit. Except ye be converted and become like little children. You will never enter the kingdom. During the season of Lent, it could be a good opportunity to reflect. Have I become like a little child? Am I desiring to live that grown-up life? Let's continue along. Um, Erica, if you're here, could you read verses 5 and 6 of our text, please? Okay, so this is, um, the conversation began with the disciples asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the conversation concludes with Jesus saying a rather surprising promise and an unsettling warning. Whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for that person that a great millstone, so this would be like... um, um, they would use these stones to grind mill. 
um, you, you had smaller stones that a, a, a man could push, but a really big one only a donkey could pull. So, I mean, this is like probably 100 pounds or so. Better to have that tied tightly around your neck and be thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's reminding us that the values of his kingdom are not the same as the values of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are concerned with amassing wealth, power, prestige, influence. And so as a consequence, the people that are the most valued in those kingdoms are the great ones. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's the children that are treasured. Now, is Jesus talking about literal children here? You know, actual little people? Or, or is he talking about the, the metaphorical children? You know, the, the disciples of Christ who have become childlike in their dependence on God. When I was preparing for the sermon, I found that commentators were, were divided over that question. There were people that fell on both sides. And so I think it's, it's totally appropriate to read both groups into this text in terms of who Jesus had in mind. He's saying, if you receive a disciple who has become childlike, if you receive a disciple like that in my name, you've received me. Likewise, if you receive a child, a little child in my name, or any in society who have a lowly status, it could be, it could be a child, could be a, an elderly person, a widow, an orphan, a refugee, you receive them in my name, you've received me. And conversely, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, if you cause a disciple to commit apostasy, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, to fall into sin, better for you to prefer a long, drawn-out physical death than to face my Heavenly Father. I've found that since I've become a parent, I can't read news articles anymore that talk about adults who abuse their power and their positions of trust to mistreat children. I can't read them anymore. I get too grief-stricken, and I get too angry. And Jesus is saying that my emotional reaction is but a shadow of the reaction of the Heavenly Father. The Father who holds every child in his hand, who catches every tear in a jar. Far better for that abuser to experience a long, drawn-out physical death than to face the wrath of the Father. And so Jesus says, the values of my kingdom are that you would become children and that you would become servants of children. That you would become children who serve children. It's the upside-down kingdom. Now, it seems that the disciples really did not get what Jesus was talking about, okay? They, they just, it went right over their heads. And yet, and yet, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it clicked. All of a sudden, they, they transitioned from pursuing greatness, pursuing their own wealth, their own prestige, their, their status. They switched from that, and they were willing to live a dependent life on God. They were willing to be despised by those around them. They were willing not to focus on treasures on earth, but rather treasures in heaven. They were willing to enter humble service of the children of this world. What helped them undergo that transition? Well, it was by watching and experiencing what Jesus 
had done for them. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who himself became a child, born as an infant to the Virgin Mary. Jesus, the the word by whom all creation was spoken into existence, depended on Mary and on her milk to survive. Depended upon his earthly father, Joseph, to swaddle him and provide a safe place for him to lay his head. Jesus, the prince of heaven, who was content to be known as a carpenter's son. And Jesus, the one who made all the riches of this world, who when he entered ministry, didn't know where his next meal would come from. But he was content with the bread and the water of life. Jesus, who took the hand of his heavenly father and allowed himself to be led wherever the father wished, even if that meant being led to the cross. And he was willing to do this so that the sons and the daughters of this world could become the sons and the daughters of God. Jesus became a child. He became childlike for the disciples, for you, and for me. And that reality melted their hearts and enabled them to go and do likewise. I want to talk a little bit more about um, that great Canadian athlete I just mentioned uh, at the beginning, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, the NFL player with the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you know where Duvernay-Tardif found himself a couple months after his Super Bowl win? He was in a Montreal long-term care facility walking door-to-door down the corridor, handing out medications, taking blood samples, inserting catheters. You see, Duvernier Tardif in 2018 had graduated from McGill's medical school, but before he had completed his residency, he was drafted for the NFL. But then COVID-19 came to North America, and he put his NFL career on hold to join the fight against this evil virus. This six foot five, 320 pound offensive lineman traded the shouts of adoring fans for the presence of sick elderly people who had no idea who he was. He traded his US $2.75 million salary for the wages of a part-time orderly. Duvernier Tardif became a child serving the children of this world. And Grace West, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for each of us. Let that reality sink into our hearts so that we might go from here and do likewise. Amen.